Amen. That we could just read that last verse and have a sermon and go home. Adam's likeness now defaced, stamped thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate us in thy life. That, that's a whole message you could preach right there and a really good one. But that's not our message for tonight. Our message tonight is the book of Jeremiah. Okay, right out of the gate, I'm going to ask you all to focus with me, okay? And imagine that this was your life. When you turn 20 years old in just a few years, Emma, in just a few years, when you turn 20 years old, God calls you to be a prophet. He says you will never be married. You will never have children. He sends you to a people that will not listen to you, that will not heed the call to repent, nor will they listen to the warning of judgment. They do not repent. You will be hated by most everyone. In 40 years, you will only have three friends worth even mentioning. And remember, you're not married. You'll be thrown in a pit where you will sink up to your waist in mud. You will nearly starve to death. You will be beaten time and time again for telling the people the true message of the Lord. You will have the king take the very words of God that God gave to you. God spoke these words to you, God Almighty. And you carefully copied them on paper. And you will have your king, the king of your people, take those scrolls in front of you and chunk them in his fire and burn them. You will have every prophecy you made about the sinful people of Judah, every prophecy you made about them come true. Yet in their exile and in their judgment, you will not boast or say, I told you so. No. You will be broken over their sin. Listen to this. Think about this. You will be broken over their sin as if you were the one that committed those sins. You will be so broken over their sin that you will cry every tear that you have to cry, as it says in Lamentation. You will be so distraught over their sin that you will throw up everything that is in your belly and your bile will be laying on the ground in front of you. And in moments like that, you will pin these words. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That would be your life if you were the prophet Jeremiah. No wonder they call him the weeping prophet. How many of y'all have ever heard that, that Jeremiah is the weeping prophet? And you hear what I just said, and it makes sense why, doesn't it? That was a hard life. And that's our book for tonight, the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, I didn't know this until I started studying for this. Jeremiah is actually the longest book in the Bible. Not by chapter count. Psalm and uh, Isaiah, at least, have more chapters. But it's the longest book by word count, at least in the original language. And it's interesting, the book is mostly about judgment. I think that's worth considering, that the longest book in the Bible is mainly about judgment. So let's look at the when. If we can go to our first slide there, which is the timeline, and it's kind of hard to see. I'll step down here so I can kind of walk you through it. So, um, Jeremiah is right here. And he prophesied from about 626 B.C. 
to um, just after the fall of the um, the fall of the southern kingdom, the destruction of Jerusalem, and all that, which was you know about 586. Um, so it's close to 40 years that he prophesied. Um, so there's there's kind of the timeline. You know the 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 northern kingdom fell in 722-ish. And so this is in between that and the fall of the southern kingdom where he did most of his prophesying. So um, his ministry spanned nearly four decades, which was mostly in Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, the southern kingdom of Judah was really struggling during this time. Um, the book contains the prophecies of Jeremiah that were dictated by a scribe, a friend of Jeremiah's named Baruch. And in Jeremiah 45.1, he says, The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, when he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Israel. Baruch is believed to have copied and collected all the prophecies of Jeremiah. And, it, and the way it's put together, it's kind of obvious. It's not really just like a straight-through chronological narrative. It's almost kind of more arranged by who it was written to than when it was written, in a sense. There's some chronology to it. but um, Baruch is uh, one. You know, I said that he had three friends worth mentioning. Um, Baruch is one of them. He was a very faithful man and a great help um, to Jeremiah, which he would have needed, and God knew he would have needed a man like Jeremiah um, in all he went through. And so it goes something like this. If you can go to the next slide. This is going to be all the, really the overview that I'm going to do. There's so much to cover in Jeremiah. We're not going to cover it all, but I wanted to give you just a kind of a brief overview of, of how it goes. Chapters 2 through 29 contains 14 messages that Jeremiah delivers mainly to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, that is still standing at this point and has not fallen to Babylon. The messages are mainly calling them to repent and outlining the judgment they will receive if they do not repent. But weaved in and out of those messages is that scarlet thread that we've been talking about in this Road to Emmaus series. As we're looking at the, the, the scarlet thread that is woven through, or as we've talked about before, the hero theme of Christ and His redemption and how that is woven all through the Old Testament. As I said before, the book is mainly about judgment, but towards the center of the book, in chapters 29 through 32, there's prophecy concerning the new covenant. So there's hope, there's that message of hope in the gospel towards the center of the book. And even though the book is most, 90% of it is judgment and wrath, there's that gospel near the very center of it that outlines message of hope and who Christ would be and what he would bring about. It ends in a, well, the, the rest of the book from 32 on uh, mainly talks about judgment on the surrounding nations. And then in chapter 52, the destruction of Jerusalem and the deportation of the Jews to Babylon. So let's start back in chapter 1. If we can flip to um, the next slide. And if somebody could look up that first one, Jeremiah 1, 1 through 5, uh, Casey, and Jeremiah 16, uh, 1 and 2. If, uh, Emma, if you can read that. And you can kind of turn and read it, turn that way when you read it, and read it loudly um, so that they can hear it. I don't need to hear it. They need to hear it. All right, so uh, Jeremiah 1, 1 through 5. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hezekiah. One of the priests who were in Anathoth's and the man of Benjamin, to whom of the Lord came in the days Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It also came, came also in the days of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. 
And until the end of the 11th year, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. All right. He said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So, for any believer, any, any thought, and this is so prevalent in our time, just this very idea, um, any thought that abortion is okay, that this verse destroys, that what you are destroying is a very life that God Almighty is knitting together and forming and fashioning in the womb, and you say, no, I'm going to kill that. That's what it is. And one of the things that they did, one of the sins that Israel and Judah and the people were doing in this time, which was despicable, was they were sacrificing their children to Molech, sacrificing their children to this idol, this false god. And even, even an abortionist now, I think, would look at that and say that that was despicable. But I would argue that what is done today is far worse. At least they were sacrificing their children to something outside of themselves. Now, yes, it was an idol, but it was outside of themselves. Today, man says, no, I'm going to sacrifice it to myself, to my own convenience. I'm God. I decide who lives. I decide who dies. I'm going to sacrifice this child because it's an inconvenience to me. And that's wicked. That is perverse. We live in a day like this that is full of wickedness. So, then he says what? He says, I ordained you to be a prophet. We talk about this a lot. God is sovereign. What does that mean? He's in control. All right. God didn't wait to see if Jeremiah wanted to be a prophet or was willing to be a prophet. It says he appointed him or ordained him to be one. God decided beforehand to make him a prophet. Now, I'm going to use some language that will be familiar to you and see if you catch it. Those were the works that, those were the good works that God decided beforehand that Jeremiah would walk in. Have any of y'all ever heard that terminology before? We sing it about every other Wednesday out there. Where does it come from? Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And these were those works for Jeremiah to be a prophet, to go to the nations, that he ordained beforehand that Jeremiah would walk with him. All of God's children, all of his children, he has good works already planned out for us to walk in. And so that's an encouraging thought. All right. Um, if we could have, uh, let's read um, Jeremiah 16, 1 through 2. Do you have that, Emma? If you can read that. The word of the Lord came to me, you shall not marry and you will not have kids. It's basically what he has said. I want you to think about this. Do you consider God as having the right to tell you what to do with your life? Do you consider him as your Lord, your master? When we use that word Lord, when the Bible talks about that's a title for, for the, Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, that word Lord is the word kurios. Here's the definition. It's kind of the, the first definition on Blue Letter Bible. I just went on there and took the, the first primary definition. He to whom a person or thing belongs, about which he has the power of deciding. And here we see this played out. God has the power of deciding for Jeremiah that he will never get married and that he will never have children. 
And Jeremiah, and this is important, Jeremiah considers God as having that right in his life, and he obeys. That is a picture of what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, that God has the right to do with us as he pleases, as he sees fit for his own purposes, and that we consider him to have that right, and, to, and we obey him, even if we have some desire to do otherwise. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus is Lord of all, whether you obey him or bless him or curse him. Jesus is Lord of all. The question is, are you going to consider him as Lord and obey him? Um, we look at this with Jeremiah, and we read verses like that. You will never marry, and you will never have children. And it's almost like we separate ourselves from a guy like Jeremiah and say, well, this is a prophet. He wasn't, even, he wasn't human. You know, he wasn't even a dude. He was like, he probably didn't want to get married anyway. I doubt that. I doubt that. Jeremiah was absolutely human. He had the same feelings, the same emotions, the same desires of every other human, I believe. And we see this played out. Um, we see this played out later on in Jeremiah. I don't have time to cover it in detail, but you heard at the opening, I talked about all the things he went to. He was beaten. He was thrown in a pit. And all of these were in response to Jeremiah um, being a really mean guy? No. They were in response to him proclaiming the message of the Lord. And so at one point in there, he's distraught over this. He's tired of being beaten and starved and put in shackles and stocks and bonds and, and all of these things and, and humiliated. And he says, your word, O Lord, is like a reproach to me. Every time I proclaim your word, I'm beaten or I'm starved or whatever. And he kind of has a conversation with the Lord about it. And he says, and I may for a time keep quiet because I'm so sick of getting beat for proclaiming your word. But then he says this, he says, but then your word is like a fire in my bones. And I cannot help but proclaim it. Heath said last week, when he talked about Jeremiah and everything Jeremiah had to go through, that Jeremiah had that vision of the Lord, that he was holy, 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 and that instilled in him a force to come up and contend, a greater force than the forces that he would contend with in the world. And we must have that greater force within us. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And so for Jeremiah, that came about like a burning in his bones. Even in fear of death and persecution to proclaim the true message of the Lord. There's so much more to be said about Jeremiah. And this is the last really, we're going to talk about his life. And we're going to move on to his message more. But... Um, he was called the weeping prophet, not because he cried a lot, although he did. He was called the weeping prophet because he was so broken over the sin of God's people. He was like Jesus in this way. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Was Jesus broken and sorrowful because things weren't going his way? No. He was broken and sorrowful over his people's sin. He wept, said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets. And even then, I think he was, one of the people he was referencing was Jeremiah. And in his grief, he was identifying with Jeremiah's grief as a type of him, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He was broken over the sin of God's people. Are you broken over your sin? Have you ever shed a tear over your sin? Are you broken over the sin of God's people? These are questions that I had to wrestle through with as I was studying for this. I get angry at other people's sin. 
That's kind of easy. Am I broken over it? Do I weep because of it? Does it drive me to my knees? Like I said, there's so much we could talk about with Jeremiah. Um, we just don't have time. So next slide, uh, Jeremiah 2, 1 through 11. If somebody could look up that one. Um, uh, Aiden, can you get 1 through 11? Uh, somebody, Jeremiah 17, 9. Josie, if you want to get that. And J Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6. Josiah. And Aiden, whenever you get to 1 through 11, if you can start with that, please. God outlines, this is God outlining His case against His people. That He had brought them out of slavery, that He had given them everything, and there was a time there that it was a sweeter season. But that now that they had changed their God for that which were not gods. They had gone after idols. And in these chapters, He uses very strong language, which I can't repeat um, unless it was R-rated. I would need Johnny's explicit signs again, <laughs> for real. Matter of fact, some of this language is so strong, it's never been read out loud in any, at any time with the Hebrews in the original language. Like, they won't read it. It's so explicit, they won't read it. But in these chapters... He uses strong language to speak what Israel had done in their relationship with Yahweh, with God. Comparing them in strikingly graphic language to a prostitute. That they had gone after other lovers and committed adultery time and time again. Yet, God was willing to take them back if they would just repent. And in these chapters, he tells what their judgment would be, will be if they do not repent. He uses metaphors like this. Listen to some of these. And this is, this is through these 20-something chapters. And it is just like, boom, one after another. Boom. A boiling cauldron. Lions. A scorching storm wind. A wolf. A leopard. Stripping away Judah's branches. Fire. Serpents. Uprooting. A jar shattered. A hammer crushing a rock and a cup of wrath that he would force them to drink. 
somebody could look up, uh, or who's got 17.9? Go ahead with that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Y'all have heard that verse in here, haven't you? How many of y'all have heard that verse or something like it? We talk about this a lot. And what do we, I know we've talked about it a lot. What, what, do we, what do we say? Is it a Disney movie? Are you supposed to follow your heart? No. Don't follow your heart. This is why they are the way they are. This is why they're doing the things they're doing is because their heart is wicked. Now, who has 23, 5 through 6? I think that was Josiah, wasn't it? Yeah. 23, 5 through 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Now raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. All right, so there it is. That hero theme starts to swell. In the midst of all this judgment, judgment, woe, judgment, call to repentance, wrath, crushing you with a hammer, being eaten by a leopard, being shredded by a lion, and then this tender shoot out of David's family tree, this, this branch. It's going to be a righteous branch. And this is what they need. They need righteousness. They don't need, it's like in, uh, in Judges, it was the same way we talked about this. They don't need deliverance from the Babylonians. They need deliverance from who? Them, their own sinful, wicked hearts. They need righteousness. And we're the same way. Heath said it last week from Isaiah. All our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags. In other words, worthless. It doesn't amount to anything. And, and, and we're the same as in Isaiah's day. Paul said there is none righteous. No, not even one. All right, next slide. If we could look up, uh, somebody look up 25, 15 through 17. Lydia? And 25, 27 through 28, Josiah. And Revelation 14, 10, Joseph. All right, you can go ahead and uh, y'all can read uh, 25, 15 through 17, and 27 through 28. Y'all can just read those back to back. So go ahead. All right, 27, 28. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts and God of Israel, Drink and be drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more, because of the sword I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. Hmm. God's wrath here is pictured like a cup that he will force the na nations to drink. Now, when the Bible uses the word cup, it's most often used in this way. Um, it's used this way in the Old Testament, and this is probably one of the biggest sections where it outlines the cup of God's wrath. Do not be fooled into thinking that God's wrath was only in the Old Testament. Let's read Revelation 14.10. Who had that? Josie? This is revelation. This is to come. This is speaking about hell. They will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His fury. One of the things we have to look at, we have to reckon with, we have to consider 
in looking at a book like Jeremiah is that God takes sin seriously. He hates it. And He will exact fully the punishment for every sin made. The cup of God's wrath talked about in Jeremiah, that is a physical representation. We've been talking about types and shadows. The wrath they experienced in Jeremiah of the nations coming in and and killing and and slaughtering and taking into captivity and and all of that, that is a physical type, a, a a foreshadowing of the far greater reality of God's wrath that will be poured out in hell for an eternity. Sins against an infinite, infinitely holy God being punished with an infinite punishment for eternity. Have you sinned? Y'all can answer out loud. Have y'all sinned? Why do you sin? Because you're a sinner? Let me ask you this. I want you to think about it before you say it. Do you deserve God's wrath? Do you really believe that you deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath? That it would be just, think about this, that it would be just for God to send you to hell for an eternity for your sins. Is there one person ever who did not deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath? Who was it? Jesus. But did he drink it? Yes, he did. Someone look up Matthew, next slide, Matthew 26, 27 through 28. And someone else, Matthew 26, 38 through 42. Um, you, uh, Casey, you take the first one. Um, Lydia, you take the second one. And um, let's see. Somebody else that hasn't? Back there. Anthony, you're going to have to read it loud. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Whoever's got Matthew 26, 27 through 28, if you could read that. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. The next one. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed and said, My father, if, if it not be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will say, but as your will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch it with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The, spirits, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Hmm. So this is the cup of God's wrath that he drank to secure for us a greater covenant, the new covenant. And this is how there can be hope in the midst of the judgment and wrath in the book of Jeremiah. This is how it gets from all the judgment and wrath that we've just read about to the section that we're about to read, Jeremiah 31 through 34. You read that. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with uh, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with, the, with their fathers on the day when
iniquity. A new covenant, a greater covenant, a superior covenant. See, he was just talking about this cup of wrath just a few chapters before. And then he talks about this new covenant that we see now. We have the privilege of looking back and seeing that that covenant would be secured by the righteous branch, the only one who was righteous, the only one who didn't deserve to drink it, drinking the cup of His wrath to secure this greater covenant. He says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. And if you're reading through that, you're like, you just said a few chapters earlier, I will leave no sin unpunished. I will smash you with a hammer. I will send a scorching storm wind. And now he's like, ah, never mind. I was just kidding. No. God is just. God does not change. And he must exact for every sin its due punishment. And he did it with His Son on the cross. By putting Him forward, as it says in Romans 3, as a propitiation, as a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. But hear this, God has two ways of dealing with sinful man. Either they satisfy His wrath in hell for an eternity, or their wrath, His wrath towards that person is placed on Christ. One or the other. There's no in between. And see, the gospel preacher of today stands in continuation of the prophet of the Old Testament. They stood and proclaimed that the wrath of God was coming against their sinfulness and called them to repent, to turn away from their sin. And we do the same. We tell men to repent, to turn from their sin and flee the wrath to come by casting themselves on Christ. All right, we're going to shift gears. That is um, what we've just covered is pretty much the, the bulk of how, uh, or what I'm going to cover anyway. There's a lot more there. It's 52 chapters, longest book in the Bible. But the portions that I selected to pull out to show how it points to Christ and the gospel. Now, some things you, you cover in a book because you love them. And some things you have to cover in a book because the culture and even other preachers have so perverted and so twisted a verse that you have to cover it. And it's a joy to cover this because it's all the Bible and it's all true. But I almost felt a compelling. I talked with Heath about it the other night. I was like, Heath, should I cover this verse? And he's like, Joe, you have to. You have to. And so I am. Because Heath told me I had to. Um, no. It led me to a good place in this and something that I think needs to be covered anyway that does actually tie in to the lesson. Anybody know what verse I'm talking about? Any of the kids? I know adults will probably know. Any of the kids know the most popular verse and misused verse from Jeremiah? You do? Anybody? Okay, I'll give you a reference and see if you know it then. Jeremiah 29.11. It says words, 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 words. Yeah, that's it. It says it's words. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and hope. How many of y'all have heard that verse? Okay. How many of y'all have seen that verse in this context? And it drives me nuts. Somebody goes to college. They graduate college. They get out of college. They get a great job. They buy a new house. They buy a car. They make a Facebook post about it and they slap Jeremiah 29 11 on it. How many of y'all have seen anything like that? I have. And it drives me nuts. And I'll show you why. This is what they mean, what the prosperity preacher, and even a lot of soft peddlers of the prosperity, they, they may not even call themselves a prosperity preacher, but this is what they mean. 
by this verse, that we can be assured that God's plan for us in this life consists of welfare. That is, wealth, homes, cars, riches, fine foods, vacations. And not for evil, which would be sickness, poverty, losing job, fill in the blank. To give you a future career, family, retirement. This is typically how a lot of people see this verse. And they ignore the context of the verse. So let's read it. If somebody um, could look up Jeremiah 29, 4 through 11. It's a long section. I need a good loud voice um, to read it. Casey, go ahead. Twenty-nine four through eleven. Thus says the Lord of hosts of God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take, well, they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your wife. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not, look, do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Thank you, sir. So who is he writing to? Where are they at this point? Did anybody catch who he was writing to and where they are and what's going on? So the people in exile. The people in exile. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. They're not in their homeland. They're not in Israel. And what does he tell them first? You're in exile. And he says, seek the welfare of the city where you are. Build houses. Get married. Have kids. Plant gardens. Eat of their produce. Don't, don't diminish there. And that's, that's good advice for us now, and we'll get to that in a minute. Then he says in verse 10, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will bring you out of this place, out of exile, out of Babylon, and back into your homeland. Then he says, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare, for future and hope. We have to understand the context for them to put it in any kind of context for us. Let me ask you some questions. Are we in our homeland? No. Where, if you're a believer, where are you a citizen of? Heaven. Heaven. Yes. Um, how do we know that? In Hebrews, the Bible calls our homeland a heavenly city. So let me ask you this. Does that mean we are exiles? Does the Bible say, doesn't matter what I say, does the Bible say that we're exiles? It's 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh. And it uses this type of language several times in the New Testament. We are exiles. So what we want to do is what God commanded the exiles to do. And what was that? Man, this, this, this country's just going to pot. I don't think I want to have any kids. I don't want to bring them up in this evil place. How many of y'all heard that? I've heard that my whole life. And that's ridiculous. 
to the exiles. They're, they're in Babylon. They've been carted off as slaves, most of them, to Babylon. And he says, don't diminish. Build houses. Plant gardens. Eat of their produce. Ha- get married. Have kids. And that's true for us now. We want things to go well for our country and our communities. We want things to go well. Um, we want them to flourish. We want to flourish. That's a good thing. We want that. We want to vote. We want to be salt and light. We want to, all of those things. Those are good things. We want to flourish, but what if we don't? What about the kid that gets diagnosed with terminal disease at 12? How do they look at Jeremiah 29 11? Plans for hope and future? I'm dying. I'm 12. What future? What about the dad who gets hurt and can't work, provide for his family, and has to burn through all of his retirement just trying to make ends meet? A hope and a future? Really? What about the husband who loses his wife and the mother of his children in a car accident? Did God forget about them? Was he, is he not powerful enough to keep it from happening? Did God give that family a hope and a future? What about a couple that can't have any kids? Did they have a hope and a future? What about broken marriages? What about losing your job? What about being sued and losing everything? A hope and a future? Really? Are you kidding me? That is a promise for when we are in our homeland, for when we are in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells, where the curse will be forsaken and there will be no more sorrow and no more pain no more death, and no more sin. See, the prosperity preacher isn't wrong. He's right. God wants you healthy, no pain, no sorrow. Yes. Then, not now. You see what I'm saying? Do you understand that? What is the title of Joel Osteen's book? Your best life then? Your best life when? Now. That's prosperity gospel, and it's garbage. It's garbage. And people use verses like, Jer- they take Jeremiah 29, 11, and they, they just toss it around and apply it to things it's not supposed to be applied to, and it makes, it messes everything up. The Bible will not allow you to go there. As much as some of us may want to, Jesus said in His Word, In this world, you will have trouble. I want to show you some hope with that. If we can turn to Romans 8, 16 through 25. Can somebody read that for me? That's another long section, I know. So it's got to be somebody loud. Tell you what, I'll read this one. I'm going to use my phone. Oh, no, huh? Okay, go for it, John. All right, that is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. And in verse um, 17 there, he starts out and he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. 
I have, I've read, I've had this chapter memorized for 20-something years. I've read it I don't know how many times. But it was about three years ago where that one word provided jumped out at me. And it was, um, my, my dad was dying of cancer. And it was two in the morning or something, and I had been reading scripture to him out loud. I don't know if he can hear me or not. I'll, maybe I'll ask him um, in heaven one day. But I was reading Romans chapter 8. I was just going through, I think I'd read most of the book of Romans. And I got to Romans chapter 8, two in the morning. My dad's dying of cancer. And I'll read this. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And I'm like, what? Suffer what? What kind of, what is He talking about? Is He talking about what I'm doing right now? Then what, what is He talking about? The creation itself groaning. Us groaning inwardly. I'm like, yes. He's talking about me sitting here right now. This is a provision. This, this is part of my salvation. You're a child of God provided that you suffer with Him in order that you may be glorified with Him. No suffering, no salvation. No groaning, no glorification. And I was like, I can rejoice in this. And the Bible says all over, rejoice in trials, rejoice in tribulation. Paul says, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. It's a limited time. Where ex- Jeremiah told the exiles it would be 70 years. He said, you're going to be here 70 years. You're going to be in exile 70 years. And then you're going to come back into your homeland. For my dad, it was 62. For my brother, my older brother, it was 23 years. He passed at 23 years old. For my grandmother, it was 98. She was 98 when she went to be with the Lord. She used to say this often. And the adults in the room can agree with this. She would say, Joseph, you get old fast and you stay old a long time. <laughs> she was 98 when she died. Ultimately, Jeremiah 29.11 also has to be understood in the context of the new covenant. It's in this section that Jeremiah outlines God's plan for the new covenant. That he had to bring them back into this land so that Christ could come and fulfill the law to fulfill all righteousness. All the prophecies, fulfill all the prophecies, And drink the cup of God's wrath, the cup that would purchase for us and secure the new covenant. We really don't have time, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, I want us to end back in chapter 2. And I I hope you've heard some of the things that I've said. Um, I really want you to see this one thing. If there's one thing I want you to take from the book of Jeremiah, it's this. Back in chapter 2, and I'm just going to read it. Because I want, I want to ask you, I don't want you to see it, I want you to ask you some questions about it. He says this, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. So what is it? What's so bad? Is it the adultery? Is it murdering your children and sacrificing them to idols? Is it, what is it? Neglecting the poor and oppressed, that's another thing he talks about in Jeremiah. This is what he says. He says, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what is he saying here? What does he mean? Let me ask you a question. Why, why do you drink water? Just, huh? Necessity. Okay. Last time you drank water, do what? Sustain life. life. Yeah. Why is the main reason when you think, I need to go get some water? Do you think, I'm going to sustain my life? I'm going to go get a drink of water. What do you think? I'm 
I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. You won't go for the water necessarily just to sustain your life. You go there because of a compelling, a desire for something, a thirst for something. So this is mainly to do with our affections, our desires. What do you thirst for? Are your desires mainly for things of this world? Or are your desires mainly for Christ? Do you see Christ as ultimately satisfying? Or is there something else that you drink that you think will satisfy your thirst? Have you experienced Him as ultimately satisfying? Or are you making yourselves cisterns that can hold no water? Do you all know what a cistern is? A cistern is essentially a well. So you've got a fountain of living water, which is God, and then you've got this broken well that can hold no water. Um, Psalm 1611 says this. I'm going to get on through this. I'm just going to read this. This has become one of my favorite verses in the last 20 years. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is a philosophy, a philosophy on combating temptation that says we know the world has all the pleasure, but we're supposed to just grin and bear it and sacrifice pleasure and obey Christ. If that were true, there would be no need really for the heavens to be shocked at what they were doing. It would almost be expected. Note what is shocking is that in His presence is fullness of joy and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. And they said no thanks. And we say no thanks. I'll take this cheap, momentary, empty imitation that sin is offering me and forsake the fountain of living waters where I can drink deeply for an eternity and be completely satisfied. That's shocking, is it not? It would be like having a choice between pig slop and the, the most glorious feast you've ever seen and saying, ah, I'll take the pig slop. That's shocking. And that's what they did. And that's what our flesh tempts us to do. In light of verses like this, um, verses like the joy of the Lord is our strength to make, start to make sense. You ever thought about that? How's the joy of the Lord your strength? Because we found a superior joy, a pleasure in Christ over and against the pleasure that sin offers, and we don't want to trade it for a broken cistern, even for a second. It's the shield of faith in the armor. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 6, and he says, with it, with the shield of faith, you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the wicked one. Really? How? Faith helps me fight temptation. How? Faith in what? Hebrews 11.6 tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. What is the reward? We'd say, who is the reward? Jesus. Jesus. For the prosperity preacher, it's a new car. But not for us. And that would be shocking to choose even a new car over Christ. Anything less than the reward being himself would be a disappointment because we know that in his presence is fullness of joy. So it goes like this. Your flesh, the enemy in the world, whispers in your ear. Okay? Just like the devil in the garden that God is holding out on you. There's something good he's trying to keep from you. All your friends are doing this and it's so much fun. You're missing out. That's hard to contend with, right? I mean, temptation in the world is alluring. Can you raise your hand and say temptation in the world is alluring? We'll admit that. Absolutely it is. They're flaming darts. That's why we have to fight fire with fire. We raise up our shield of faith and say, I believe that Christ is the fountain of living water, that this sin is a broken cistern that cannot satisfy, and we taste and see that the Lord is good. And that glorifies the Lord. That brings great glory to the Lord when we are most satisfied in Him. Do you thirst for Christ? That's another question I want you to wrestle with. Do you
Do you thirst for Christ? Have you ever thirsted for Christ? If you do thirst for Christ, then praise the Lord. Your thirst is a blood-bought gift brought about by the new covenant. Jeremiah 24, 7 says, I will give them a new heart to know that I am the Lord. A heart that can taste and see that He's good. A heart that can seek Him. A heart that can thirst for Him. If you don't thirst for Christ, if you only thirst, thirst for things of the world, then please consider what is at stake. Call upon the name of the Lord. Turn from your broken cistern to the fountain of living water so that you may live. Revelation twenty two seventeen says this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. The water of life without price. And that is an amazing statement. We deserve, listen to this. This is the last thing I'll say to you. We deserve all of the judgment outlined in the book of Jeremiah. Every bit of it. We deserve to drink the wine of God's wrath. Yet Jesus drank it so that we might freely drink of the water of life. Let's pray. Father, I come to you and I thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for Jesus that he did drink that cup for us, the cup that we deserved of your wrath. Lord, we thank you that you offer the water of life without price. Lord, may each and every one of us drink deeply from that cup. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus.